Albert Einstein once wrote, Everything is determined, the beginning as well as the end, by forces over which we have no control. It is determined for the insect as well as the star. Human beings, vegetables, or cosmic dust, we all dance to a mysterious tune, intoned in the distance by an invisible piper. Hey everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Sanders. I'm Chad Allen. And I'm Paco Allen. Hey everybody, today we wanted to talk about the concept of compatibilism. And compatibilism, in a nutshell, is the notion that free will and determinism can coexist. Um, So I think probably we should start out by defining what those two things are, free will and determinism. And in the opening quote uh, that we heard from Einstein, he kind of lays out... Was that Einstein reading uh, that quote? No. Oh, it was just written by him. It was written (laughs) by him. (laughs) Okay. Okay. yeah, so in, in the opening uh, quote from Einstein, uh, he basically kind of lays out in a nutshell what uh, determinism is, uh, which is the concept that uh, everything that happens in the universe is governed by the laws of physics. Everything is governed by the idea of causality, that one thing causes the next thing. And if you kind of roll back the universe till the dawn of time, everything that is happening now is a result of events that have happened previous to it. And as a result of that, uh, anything that that humans do is predetermined by all the events that have happened in the past. And that when you think you're making a decision at a restaurant to buy a hamburger, that's not actually something that you're choosing to do. It's been predetermined by the laws of physics and all the events that have led to it. If I, in theory, if I went back to the very beginning of the universe and I knew all the laws of physics, I could like predict that you were going to order that hamburger at that time well i mean uh in in a very simple way yeah but i think we'll also get into this later when you get into um quantum mechanics and uh sure some of the unpredictability of quantum mechanics you might be able to say that even if you knew all the laws of physics you wouldn't have been able to predict the current state of the universe because of um some of the randomness of quantum mechanics but uh that choice that you made to order that hamburger wasn't something that you had any control over. It was dictated by all of the events that led up to that right. moment. And so even if it wasn't predetermined in that sense, it was still just a function of stuff happening in the physical world, whether that was determinant or indeterminate because of quantum mechanics. Right. right. So that's determinism. That's right. the one that's one of the two main topics that we're talking about today in, in terms of trying to figure out are these two things compatible, right? So yep. that's determinism. And then the other one's free will. And I think honestly this one might be harder to like put a clear definition on, although compatibilists will have their specific definition of yeah. it. But I think there are a number of different definitions of free will. Um, but basically, like, how, how would you how would you define? Well, I think free will? You, I think that everyone can sort of start with their own like sort of everyday understanding of the phrase, and I think most people would probably say that it's something like the ability to choose like the ability to do the thing that I want to do, the ability to order a hamburger or a chicken sandwich and actually like of my own volition 
make one of those things happen and not the other. Uh, and and this is, I think, becomes a problem for philosophers mostly in um, the arena of ethics because what immediately happens is that if you strip away the notion that we have the ability to make real choices between one thing or the other, then it becomes very difficult to see how someone could be held accountable for their actions. And so this has created a crisis in the last several hundred years, which is that it's harder and harder for us to cling to our everyday notions of free will and the fact that we are moral agents who can make choices about our behavior. And it's made it harder and harder to reconcile that belief with what we know about the natural world. And so over the last several hundred years, a philosophical project has sort of slowly emerged to try to salvage the notion of free will and describe free will in a way that's compatible with uh, the laws of physics and and allows us to hold people accountable for their actions while still holding on to this scientific view of the world. And so this project has a not very sexy name, uh, Compatibilism, uh, which is... Most philosophical <laughs> names for things that are unsexy. Um, yeah, that might be true. I'm trying to think of a sexy philosophical project. Well, the, the philosophical uh, philosopher of Blaise Pascal is pretty sexy. <laughs> um, Next up on the stage, Blaise Pascal. That's Everybody like give an it American up ninja. Blaise. Oh, WWF stripper. Name or but, oh. <laughs> so I'm up on, next up on stage was not a American Ninja Warrior <laughs> announcement. Um, okay. At any rate. Because so, because really what it would be if you if you resign yourself to the fact that all the decisions have been made and the 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 world is on rails that your actions have no meaning you you are facing a a grim uh, reality where you're you're limited your potential uh, the whole American dream is based on realizing your potential of doing things <laughs> that uh, you want to do that are different from the status quo. It's so great to have an immigrant yeah. in this the all, room. <laughs> it's all about that little war that we won over you, isn't it? <laughs> Um, I, I mean, I also think that that's kind of that. That's like the grimmest, darkest picture that, that, you can. That, that terrorist uh, that, uh, initiative. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that that's like the grimmest, darkest picture you can paint of determinism, though. Where like just because my behavior is governed by the same laws that produce quasars makes it like grim and gray. In some way, that's m- magical, right? And just because I don't have this thing called free will that we've potentially constructed and fabricated because we want to be more special than a squirrel that doesn't mean that the way that i behave is is not interesting or special right Right. but it makes it really hard to think that you are accountable for your actions sure yes and so but but believing that people are accountable for their actions is a cornerstone of human interaction right and sure it's it's super fundamental to who we are and it's hard to imagine a world in which we let go of that and say "Eh, nobody's responsible for anything they do 
Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of philosophical topics, it's it, you, you, you when you when you dissect them and think about them, you can come up with a, a a logical or you know kind of a scholarly point of view on them. But every day when you wake up in the morning and kind of go about your daily life, there's a separate set of behavior. I mean, I think that's like a constant kind of wasn't that, tension wasn't... with philosophical thinking and just like everyday human life wasn't there a study that ethical philosophers behave on mass less ethical because they know all the rules and economists <laughs> economists give less money to charity even though they know the benefit of giving more money to charity right, will we see that study in the show notes sure why not i'll get my guy right on you would not believe how many wikipedia articles in this podcast have been modified to accommodate the, the, the uh, issues i had so get to the show notes quickly before the wikipedia editors revise them yeah i totally mutilated the wikipedia article on david hume in order to get some good quotes for this show okay so Compatibilism. Compatibilism. <laughs> Compatibilism. <laughs> this is also one that's like really hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. Super arrogation. Compatibilism. Compatibilism. I mean, I still can't. I'm just going to edit in. Let me get a clean take. Compatibilism. <laughs> so, again, the Compatibilist Project is an attempt to reconcile what we believe to be true about the physical world with what we believe to be true about, um, morality and ethics so what's the argument well what's the argument for so the, compatibilism so a lot of people and probably including you paco would say that the that the project is largely about redefining what we mean by free will and so you can kind of trace this back to david hume in some ways uh one of the first philosophers that people um think about as a compatibilist compatibilist Damn it, it is hard to say. <laughs> um, and, and he essentially said that um, free will is, is the ability to act according to your desires. So that if you choose to do something, you're no, no, no. able if to you, do it. No, but I would say it's even different than that. It's if you, well, not if said, you choose to do it. It's if you, if you want to do something or have a desire to do something, and then you do that. That's how the compatibilists define free will. So to me, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily make it different from determinism in that I would say there are plenty of times that you have a desire to do something. And, Which is deterministic. And can't do it. Right. Because of some obstruction. Right. Right. So in that definition of free will, it's just the alignment of your internal desire to do something and then that thing happening to have happened for me that doesn't that's just like a kind of redefinition of free will so to give, make me a de definition give me a definition of free will well you i don't would, like that one well i would say that the the compatibilist definition of free will works with determinism because there isn't there's no definition of a situation in which there were actually two different outcomes that could have happened and that some kind of agency outside of the world of physics allowed an individual to choose one path over another, a path that wasn't already predetermined. Like in that definition, Free will is just like you've just taken those two words, free will, 
and applied them to a specific description of an event that is deterministic. And it like loses the meaning of free will to me. Like the, like the, the notion that people generally have of free will, I think is about the idea that you walk up to an intersection in life and there's a path to the right and a path to the left. And that there is equal chance that either that you could walk down either of those paths and that you have some kind of special ability to decide which path you walk down. Right. Free but agent of free will, according to the compatibilist, just says, I want to walk down the right. I come up to that intersection and I have a desire to walk down the right path. Yeah. And I walk down the right path and therefore I have free will. And But then the next time I come up to that intersection and I want to walk down the right path, but I walk down the left path. Do I not have free will in that situation? Do I have free will in some instances and not in others, according to a compatibilist? No, no, I don't think that's the right way to think about it. So, the... but why not? But because why? because because according to that definition of free will, it's just you have a desire to do something, and that desire, and then that, and then that thing that you desired to do manifests. But there are plenty of cases where I have a desire to do something, and then my desire to do that thing does not manifest. Right, but I think that that's like an oversimplification of compatibilism. So let's let's talk about the philosopher Harry Frankfurt's idea that you have different orders of desire, right? So he puts forward this idea that you have what he calls first-order desires and second-order desires, and that the first-order desires are about things in the world and one of the what you choose to order in the first course <laughs> and then the second order is yeah, is, yeah your entrees, yeah, your entrees. <laughs> appetizers and entrees yes it's the a compatibilist view of of, of menu food decisions. ordering yes, yes. <laughs> um so first order desires are are about always nachos <laughs> <laughs> second order desires are often also about nachos <laughs> for me <laughs> <laughs> no, sir, but what would you like for your entree? Nachos. Yeah. And, and for your appetizer? Nachos. I don't understand why I have to cheese. Um, you've really you've really embraced this California lifestyle. <laughs> it's always been that way. <laughs> we were just back in Michigan a week ago, and the first thing I pointed out to chat on the first menu in the first restaurant we went to was, they have nachos. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I know. <laughs> he talked me into having nachos. <laughs> <See>? <laughs> You probably didn't even have the desire. To I didn't have. have I didn't. Yeah. I had. There was no. I had zero free will in the matter. I just <laughs> ate nachos. So, so Frankfurt uses often the example of of a drug addict, and he says that you know a lot of uh, anyone who uses drugs has a first order desire to take drugs, right? And so, okay. how, how are first order desires defined? Okay, so first order desires have actions as their objects. So. Eating a piece of cake, going to the gym, recording a podcast, taking drugs. Like, those are the objects of first order like, desires. Sounds like my afternoon schedule. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of cake, a little bit of ketamine. Now, if I'm wired, hit the gym. Let's get this podcast out of the way. <laughs> and, se- and second order desires um, have first order desires as their object, right? The- so the drug addict is a good sort of case study in this uh, approach to free will because they someone who is a what Frankfurt calls an unwilling addict is someone who has a first order desire to take drugs but a second order desire 
to not take drugs. So their will, in a sense, is represented by this second order desire to not do this thing, which they are compelled to do because of their first order desire. And he calls that person an unwilling addict. There's another kind of drug addict, the willing addict, who has that same first order desire to take drugs, but they also have a second order desire to take drugs. And this is sort of like the foot in the door to try to preserve some sense of free will for the compatibilist is to say that our will is represented by our second order desires. And so this is how we, for example, deal with the cases of people who have committed criminal acts, which we can trace back to the fact that they have a brain tumor or a brain injury, right? They have a, a first order desire to commit a crime which Based is, on a brain tumor. Right. But they often and almost always the in these cases where someone has a tumor or a brain injury that that we implicate in a criminal act, those people also express a second order desire to not to have not those compulsions. Those right. And yeah. so Frankfurt would say that that he calls those second order desires your volition and that and that that volition is realized when you're second order desires and your first order desires mesh. So he calls this like a mesh theory um, and that your free will is actualized when those two desires mesh and you're able to actualize your second order desires. But that often your free will is is thwarted by your first order desires, whether those are things that are sort of intrinsic to you or extrinsic. On some level, like I don't, I still don't really see the difference between the first level desires and the second level desires in that it's not like they manifest from different places. two different places. You thinking it's th- turtles all the way down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So another way that he's right. He, like what? Like, so in the case of somebody who commits a crime and we'll add some links to cases in the show notes, a lot of the really well documented and, Really compelling cases involve lots of terrible things, so we're going to like kind of skip talking about the specifics on the show. But in a lot of those cases, it's like, okay, this brain tumor is causing somebody to do something that they don't want to do. Or in another case, someone, they're epileptic and they're having seizures and they have surgery to brain surgery to stop the seizures, and then that has some other criminal side effect, manifests criminal behavior that they never had before that surgery, right? But how is it How is it any different? Like, it's still their brain. It's still the physical material of their brain that's, that is governed by the laws of physics, whether it's a tumor or just like a tiny section of their frontal lobe or whatever, right? It's still like a physical structure in their brain, that is causing a first level or a second level desire. So like, what is it? What's, why does it matter whether it's first or second level? Well, because how how is one of those different than the other? uh, Because one of them reflects. So a lot of philosophers, a lot of compatibilists will say that that second order desire is what we, what we can identify as the self or what's really you. Right. Whereas those first order desires are often a function of things that are beyond that your control. Even, that doesn't even make sense because yes, you're it talking does. about the structure of your brain and just the structure of your brain. One part of the structure of your brain in one case. So are you saying that a, you've never a desire? You've never had the experience of desiring to eat a donut, 
but also desiring to, to not, not be fat. It. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But right. both of those things are are caused by the same thing. Right, but wouldn't you say that you're So in uh, the end I eat your donut. Like what caused that? I def- Or I don't eat it. I don't <laughs> So there, so I have a first level desire to eat that donut. That's the exercise. I have a second level desire to not be fat, so I don't eat that donut. Right. I have free will. Then you have free will in both cases, as to the extent that you have a second order desire, you have free will. So um, that I mean, animals are like a great example in this respect, right? We we the way that Frankfurt would. Uh, another way that he sort of illustrates this is by saying that, hey, you know who doesn't have second order desires? Animals. Yeah, Animals. I'm going to tear this one apart. Okay, go for it. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, Terrier, this one want to pop? Uh, yeah. mm, <laughs> that's okay. A that's a stretch. If you're lucky, I'll edit that terrible joke out. No. Probably not. <laughs> it will at least show up at the end of the show. Um, so, uh, I don't know. Like, Tiger has a desire to eat this antelope. Tiger sees an antelope down by the water. Mm. Tiger has a first level desire to eat that antelope. Yeah. Do tigers eat antelope? They must yes, yeah, okay, I, okay. they yeah, eat anything. Okay, I know, but I'm just trying to do a check there to make sure that they live in the same place. <laughs> so Tiger has a desire to eat antelope. Tiger sees antelope down by the water. Tiger has a second level desire to not get eaten by the crocodile. No, those are both first order desires. Really? But, yeah. Why? Because they're both about the objective. Um, they're because second order desires are about first order desires, and only about first order yes, desires by definition. So your your first order desires have actions in the world as their objects. I desire to take this action, or I desire to take that action. Right. Your second order desires are desires about. What you, which of those first order desires you wish to act on? Could I, could I rephrase that? So the second order desire, uh, acts on the object and that object is the self itself, as opposed to a concrete element out in the world, my fear, my hunger, my gluttony. The second order is how those decisions are going to affect this nebulous, amorphous, <laughs> platonic idea of self, <laughs> um, which animals don't have. I think that's, roughly accurate yeah like the things that define mark sanders are mark's second order desires his first order desires you know are not like not necessarily reflective of his true self the first true self is actualized to the extent that he is able to mark's Mark's decided to eat a lot of donuts (laughs) (laughs) i've seen him yeah okay well (laughs) paco supplied the last batch (laughs) yeah i did (laughs) Okay, so you're still not buying it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how those two things, even though they have a hierarchy, being caused by the same... You know, if if the idea of compatibilism is all about starting from a point of accepting determinism and then trying to trying to find a way to make free will compatible with determinism, like I don't understand how just because first and second level desires have a hierarchy that that second level desire still isn't caused by the same 
physical it world is, is it is first. it is totally cosmic. it is yeah. but I, I mean I, then I, I just think then i just think like it's it's like a parlor show of of semantics to to de- redefine free will in a way that doesn't jive with the way that people think about free will when you say like did you make that decision right like do, you had two choices you could vote for obama or you could vote for romney mm-hmm. and you walked into that booth and you you could have actually voted for either one of those people but you could and have you made a cho- i mean determinism Incompatibilists say, I think would say no, right? They would say no. The only you you walked in there and you never ever could have voted for anybody other than the person you voted for, right? But that doesn't mean that you didn't have free will, right? That doesn't mean that yeah. That doesn't mean that you didn't desire to vote. That definition of free will is like meaningless. (laughs) Yeah, I I would, I would, I would back out of that first order and second order. But I think the the key point that you brought up was around the the notion of self. If you can say from a deterministic point of view that if you uh, turn back the playhead of the cosmic uh, uh, timeline to the very first point where the universe was created, like uh, a break in a game of billiards. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was it was created into existence. Yeah, yeah. So th- those are all deterministic, clockwork, functional, objective, measurable, scientifically accurate ways of describing how events have carried on. But the act of free will is a product of the self, which does not exist in the same plane of reality as all of our mechanistic ideals, then free will can exist because it's a wholly separate arena. And then you yeah, get into the I think then of, you're out of the world of true determinism and then yeah, we're exactly. back into the mind body problem. Yeah, right? mind body exactly. But but if compatibilism is all about accepting determinism and then finding a way to make free will work with it, I reject this BS redefinition of free will. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> like, like you, because, because it doesn't because it doesn't sound like there's any actually any statistical chance. There's there there was no chance of you ever choosing the other choice. There was no chance right, of there was no uh Yes. Yeah, like, and 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 I th- and I think if you if you walked up to the average person on the street and said like this is what free will means now this is what it means now free will they'd be like what whatever man like no they the I the notion of free will that that, that people have is that they could walk into that voting booth and, and that, act upon their desire and act upon their desire right and that as an, as an but, and also that there's a, <laughs> and also that there's a chance that they that they could choose at some point like we're kind of redefining right but that the, but the now word you're just choice. but that now you're just defending the view that people have like a believe in magic right because what you're saying is people believe that the world does not behave in accordance with natural law and that physics doesn't fully describe the universe but i think that that the desire to quote unquote like save free will and make it compatible with determinism is because people want to save some notion some common everyday notion of what free will means they want that to exist and so there's a there's an attempt to try to construct a definition definition right. of free will that works with determinism even if it means altering the idea of free will so much that if you walked up to someone on the street and said what do you think free will means and then told them what your definition of free will means, they'd be like, they would either wouldn't understand it or they would say no. There's, right? you, you're saying you're saying there's still a market demand for old-fashioned <laughs> retro <laughs> free will. Yeah. Well, it's like in the fact yeah. that no, retro But the free problem will is, is that you're like it's really hard for you to formulate a definition of what that old-fashioned free will is. Well, I think on some level it means that there is actually like a chance that you could choose option A or choose option B. But you but don't just mean chance. That, but you don't mean chance in like 
the quantum indeterministic sense of chance. You mean that the agent has the opportunity to make one thing so, or another thing true, regardless of the physical state of the universe yeah. and the laws of physics that so, obtain you, at that particular if point you, in time. If you roll down, if you roll back history uh, exactly one day and you evaluated all of those decisions right at the point where you, you, you went back in time, you could be getting different results from exactly the same inputs because free will can change the output. Okay, so I think then this... If we, yeah, if we I think want... that idea of free will gets back to things like the mind-body problem, and mm-hmm. determinism would say like no dice, all but, things being but, equal. But, you but own, you in the argument, in 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 the conversation of compatibilism, we've accepted determinism, and we're trying to make free will work with it, right? And so you think it's a failed? You think com- compatibilism is a failed project? Yes, F minus. <laughs> <laughs> you might even say it that... is. By the way, the prevailing view in contemporary philosophy for whatever that's worth compatibilism yeah Yeah. um but there are i so if we're gonna junk it i I don't want to do it without asking you to follow up question which is asked by (laughs) sorry this is the way this is the way the first section of the show always ends with me (laughs) for for extra credit (laughs) uh so uh, there are a, a very small handful of of contemporary philosophers like uh, Peter Van Inwagen who defend an incompatibilist position. Which, that, uh, I'm sorry. No, what? You don't just, like his name? No, <laughs> the latest, no, the latest four-door sedan from Volkswagen, <laughs> the Inwagen. Oh, uh, what is it going to take for me to get you into one of these Peter Van Inwagen stuff? <laughs> well, I'll tell you exactly what it's going to take. Okay. It's going to take you deciding that the concept of free will and the way that you're describing it is more important than the um, our current theories of physics and our current understanding of the natural world. Because what he would say is roughly that the concept of free will is so important to us and so deeply rooted in the way that we view the world that the right thing to do is to be skeptical about our current fi- theories of physics and, and the current set of natural laws because it's easier for us to be skeptical about that than it is for us to be skeptical about the notion that we have free will. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that's a fair statement, right? Mm. But that's that's not compatible. That's not compatibilism. That's saying that, like, yes. hey, like we should think, right? We so, should rethink. So that's a view that's been classically yeah. termed yeah. like libertarianism, yeah. which is different from political libertarianism, right. but is is an incompatibilist position. And I would be which willing- says that which says that. You know, it it starts from that tension of like either free will is true or determinism is true, and the incompatibilist tries to say they're both true, and and libertarians try to say, well, we can't resolve that conundrum, and so we're gonna and so we're going to side with uh, maintaining our intuitions about free will. Also, back off with the taxes. <laughs> um, so yeah, and and I and I would say like I'd even be willing to accept the definition of free will from the compatibilist standpoint if the goal is to say is this definition of free will compatible with this definition of determinism? Like, yeah, like I it's hard to disagree with that, but I think that that definition of free will is describing something that's different than what most people expect when you say free. Do will. people have free right. will? I think I think you know I think it's a very mature uh, way to think that we should be able to hold incompatible statements and be able to be okay with that until we can find a better solution. That's the mature solution. So I've got you. I, I've 
I, you're buying a Peter Vanden wagon. I'm in. <laughs> Sign me up. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not paying for the undercoating. <laughs> you guys, you just got to throw that in because I don't even believe it's real. Um, Free will, you believe undercoating, not so much. No, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Are we good? I think we should stop there. I guess it sounds like nobody could really muster the, the will, so to speak, to fully defend the compatibilist position. I'm not sure exactly where that leaves us, but maybe it means, Paco, maybe it just means that academic philosophers have been living in their little academic philosopher bubble for so long and that you're right, that if they were to like walk around on the street and like try to sell this version of free will, people would just be like, Mah. David Letterman like, style, they'd get, right. they'd get a bunch of really funny <laughs> quotes that they compile into a montage. <laughs> I think that's a great uh, video, like follow up to this episode. Yeah. Okay. Look for that in two months. Get <laughs> <laughs> okay, right on it. <laughs> All right. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, everyone. We just wanted to take a few seconds and thank everyone for listening. And if you're enjoying the show so far, there's something we'd like to ask you to do to help us out. Head over to iTunes and give us a review. And while you're there. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. Ratings, reviews, and subscriptions are the main factors that determine whether we get noticed and the podcast becomes a weekly fixture in your ears. We'd really appreciate the support. Now back to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Um, I wanted to uh, tell this, uh, what we think is probably an apocryphal story about David Hume uh, that gets recounted in a, a couple of different places. Um but the story is that um, in the early 1770s, he was um, living in Edinburgh, um, and uh, he it was going from someone else's house back to his place. Was he drunk? He had to, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, as long as we're just making shit up, yeah, he was yeah, drunk. He, he was Scottish. He was probably <laughs> he drunk. Was, um, and, he, and he had to take a shortcut across this bog, right, which I guess is a thing. In Scotland, I don't know, Mark. Maybe you know more about this. <laughs> a, pe- a peat bog, a yeah. source of local fuel. <laughs> so, so he had to take this shortcut across a bog, and um, and he he fell into like a, a mud pit. pit. Yeah, he and, was drunk, and <laughs> and he got stuck there. And why well, are you so muddy? Oh man, I had to go through this bog when really he just like <laughs> fell into a ditch on the way home, a well-traveled road, and. Um, uh, we obviously didn't talk about this in the show because it's about free will, but he was also he also wrote a lot about atheism and and um, defended the atheist position, and he was very well known for that. Um, and so the story is that like a, a, a milkmaid ran across him, like a peasant woman ran across him while he was stuck in this bog. In a bog, yeah. <laughs> and, and additional reason for calling <laughs> on the bog story. <laughs> so I met Mitch. this chick when I was in this bog. Sorry, honey. <laughs> And uh, and and she was like, and he's like, help me out of this mud pit. And she was like, wait, aren't you Hume the atheist? I don't think I want to help you. And he and he says, according to this one account, but my good woman, does not your religion as a Christian teach you to do good even to your enemies? That may well be, she replied, but you won't get out of there till you become a Christian yourself and repeat the Lord's prayer. And so Hume was forced to repeat the Lord's prayer in order to get out of the muddy bog. The end.
<laughs> it reminds me a little bit of a story of uh, are you familiar with the the stand up comedian uh, Bill Hicks uh, yeah. who who passed away in the 90s who was a also a very uh, radical had some radical views on on uh, on atheism and he said he he, he did one gig um and it was very very you know very tough to uh, a certain number of christian views and afterwards uh, a bunch of guys like you know you know stopped him um backstage and said hey, we we didn't like what you had to say we're christians we didn't like what you had to say and he said then forgive me <laughs> <laughs> i guess the punchline to that story is that um hume uh supposedly retold this story a lot and he always um commended the woman as being the most acute theologian that he had ever account- encountered. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote, he retold it so many times that he realized that the idea of having to take a shortcut through a bog was better than falling down in a ditch drunk on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so I guess we can transition um, from that into uh, Thomas Hobbes, who uh, a lot of Hume's work was based on, yeah. on Thomas Hobbes. And for those of you who recognize that name from a, a certain comic strip, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, the Hobbes was named after, was named after Thomas Hobbes. Was the Calvin named after John Calvin? Yes, Bill, yeah. Bill Waterson yeah. went on record. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I think Mark knows a lot about this, which is why I brought it up, because I figured it was a deep pocket of Mark's <laughs> random knowledge. But I think it is, there, there is something weird about the fact that he chose to name both of those characters after people who had a viewpoint of mankind that was basically man man didn't have a lot of free will right like you know hobbes was a determinist who later came around and tried to like reconcile that and became you know one of the like first kind of modern compatibilists but then also calvin you know his point of view was basically that like god ruled over all of man's actions and from a christian standpoint man has like the least amount of free will in that version of, of Christianity compared to most versions of Christianity. So I think it's interesting that he chose two people from kind of two different worlds, you know, one from a, a philosophical world, one from a religious world, who both had a point of view that, like, man didn't have a whole lot of say in his actions. Mm. And the, the imaginary friend, the religious one. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, wait, so that was your fun fact? Is yeah, that was my Bill fun Watterson- fact. <laughs> That's a fun fact. I also have a piece of reader mail. Oh, what? really? What? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> First piece of reader mail. And actually, it's not a piece of mail. It's a Facebook comment. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it's not really even about the show. It's just like it's something I read on Facebook. No, no. no what does it say? It's no, something it's, about it's minions. About, it's, it's, about the, it's about the show. It's in direct response to uh, 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 to the recent success of the show. Uh, this, is, this is from a, uh, a Matthew Day, and, and he writes... I'm hoping you guys can do an episode to clear something up. Uh-oh. If I, this is a really, this is a long-standing debate in philosophy. I mean, it dates back to Aristotle. And Aristotle, before. yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I wear a pair of shoes every other day over 600 days, will they be in better shape than if I wear one pair of shoes for 300 <laughs> days straight? <laughs> So I don't think this warranted an entire episode, but I, I just wanted to, you know, to try, try to do a quick hit on this one and figure out. So two pairs of shoes, alternating days over 600 days, better or worse condition than a pair of shoes worn 300 days straight. And, and by extension, if you had um, a second pair of shoes that are also worn 300 days in a row sequentially after the first pair of 300 day shoes, yep. 
will they last longer or have more wear than if you were to alternate those two pairs of shoes every other day for the, the same length of time? Yeah, I mean, same question. Yeah, same question. Yeah. Yeah. This is, reminds me of the question about whether you should run or walk when it's raining. That was right? actually that was tested in Mythbusters, <laughs> and it depends on, the, <laughs> depends on the volume and strength of the rain. Well, and, and also, and also ha- how much mass you, the runner, uh, take up for for listeners at home mark is rubbing his belly <laughs> no i think he wasn't really rubbing it he was kind of like you know measuring it <laughs> okay so okay so but does the uh, mythbusters test this shoe thing no we're, 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 we're all the, on our own the answer oh, yeah. to that is shut up matt ask us <laughs> ask us a real question <laughs> uh next week on you've got it all wrong do matt's shoes last longer if he has two pairs because his question was do the do the uh, I think from other conversations he's, he's had on this topic, like do the shoes that you wear every other day? Do they heal when you're not wearing them? <laughs> so Are they alive? A little bit. I I actually do. We want to debate this? Yeah. No. Sure. Okay. It's our first piece of <laughs> it's the first piece of of listener feedback we've Today. received. Today, today, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean during the recording, right? right. We've got a whole other pile. Oh yeah, <laughs> stacking up for a dedicated episode of Reader Mailbag. Okay, good, good. Um, I think that uh, that allowing the shoes to rest and breathe does, you know, sort of, uh, I think, allow them to regenerate a little bit because they are being, you know, they are inhabited by a lot of microorganisms um, and chi. Uh, I think <laughs> and 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 those microorganisms flourish in an environment in which your hot sweaty feet are in your shoes. So you think I think, th- you, I think you've got it all wrong. <laughs> and here's why. Oh, finally. For, for finally. Some, for some of the same reasons because I think that like UV radiation and just like molecular decomposition and Half-Life, like, dictates that those shoes are breaking down every day, whether you're wearing them or not. Right. So if you're alternating, even though that, even on the off day, the shoe isn't getting the physical abuse. It's not getting any younger. Yeah, the, the physical abuse that you would give it when it was on your foot, but it's still, you know, being subject to all of the other physical aspects that would quantum decay quantum decay yeah Mm. shoe (laughs) half-life so so matt you thought you thought you were asking some smart ass question you know making fun of the legitimacy of this show and the seriousness of the topics we tackle but guess what we'll take this on yeah yeah one pair of shoes straight through 300 days paco convinced me i did have it all wrong one pair of shoes (laughs) all right matt one pair of shoes. You, yeah, you got it all wrong. <laughs> yeah, and he's got, he's got a lot of shoes, so he well, should probably just, just do Paco really wants to end yeah. the show on, you've <laughs> yeah. got it all wrong. <laughs> that wraps it up for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and give us a rating in iTunes. As always, you can find us online at you'vegotitallwrong.net, where you can find show notes for today's episode. You can also send us an email to feedback at you'vegotitallwrong.net with questions, comments, or recommendations for show topics. And you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Paco Allen. I'm at Chad Allen. And I'm at M. Saunders.
If you want somebody to read this in an Albert Einstein impersonation that isn't, and I'm half a beer into the show, it's (laughs) gonna have to be you. (sighs) Let me open another beer while we're talking about. Do you want to do it the way I was planning (laughs) to do it? It's in my head. Me trying to do it sounds like Valky (laughs) Bartokamus. Everything is determined. I told you. I told you, and you said no. We're not gonna laugh. <laughs> half Valky and half the guy from Taxi. Yeah, oh yeah, that's who was in my head. It was the guy from Taxi. Where's he supposed to be from? Some made-up country, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah not Germany. <laughs> Everything is determined. The beginning as well as the end. By forces over which we have no control. It is determined for the insect as well as the star. Human beings, vegetables... What is this accent I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> it was going pretty well. Pretty well for the a while. The vegetables <laughs> is where it fell apart from me.